Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host KB, and this podcast brings you the audio experience of GameDev.TV. Now, let's get right into the podcast. So this is episode number 50, Just crazy. We started, I don't know, seven months ago, just racking out episodes, talking about different game development topics like programming. Uh, VR, the future of game industry, game design, all that stuff. And we've been getting an instructor every 10 episodes. So episode 50, let's get Sam on. Nice. So we got Sam, one of the uh, amazing game that TV instructors. And he can tell you a little bit more about himself. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as as Kevin said, I'm one of the other instructors on Game Dev TV. I typically focus on programming related stuff. I'm I'm a software engineer at heart and by training. So that's that's kind of the areas I focus on. I got into game development. Oh, probably when I was 14 is what got me inspired to start learning to program in the first place. So um, building little flash games was where I started out and um, have been in love with games and programming them ever since, basically. So dream job to be able to make, teach, and be involved with the, the lovely community. No, I agree. That's pretty awesome. Especially everything you guys are doing. You can't go wrong with it. <laughs> now, um, when you started making games when you were 14, how did you get into that? Yeah, well, um, well I, I, I think for me it was, I played a lot of Flash games, as was the, uh, the Rage at the time. Uh, obviously, Flash has kind of died now, but um, that, was, that was the thing, right? All, all Flash games and stuff. So... That was the kind of stuff I liked to play, and I just wanted to make them. I was like, I was interested. What, what, what is this? I actually started off animating. That was the first thing I did with Flash. So what was that? I can't remember which way around it came, but that was, they were pretty close together. So I started off animating, um, but realized that you know some people make games in Flash, so I wonder how how they do that and made a very dodgy stick figure <laughs> plat- platformer thing with uh, action script code that I copied from forums and didn't fully understand what it was doing. But it got me into it and got me um, starting out with something. And that was the first exposure to programming. I wouldn't necessarily count it because I don't think I understood any programming from it. Um, <laughs> Then I think the first language I properly learned was a C++. I just had a, funnily enough, it was Sam's teach yourself C++ in whatever it was, 28 days or something. Um, I took that on a summer holiday with myself, with me and uh, worked my way through it. Understood like 20% of it, implemented some of the stuff um, on, uh, on, yeah, just, yeah, just like hello world programs, making things compile, figuring out, your basics, your missing semicolons, your includes that you don't know where to put and all that sort of stuff. So um, that was the first language I learned properly. In retrospect, probably not the best language to have dived in with and maybe not the best book to have dived in with um, because I think there was lots of stuff I didn't understand. Um, But yeah, I've uh, been programming Ever since, really, d- d- different things, um, playing around with different languages, Python, so on. Did a computer science degree, did a lot of programming there. Actually, it's less than you'd think. Less programming in a computer science degree than you'd think. And then, you um, remember, like, data sciences and algorithms? Yeah, you do a lot of algorithms. You do a lot of maths. 
you do a lot of maths and computer science so it's all you end up writing lots and lots of equations and doing lots of coursework on paper which you wouldn't imagine um given the degree right <laughs> writing a lot right. of code out from from your head and then um uh yeah do you think that helps you making games or just help you like i don't know whether it helped with making games per se um i think that kind of theoretical computer science degree the great thing about theory is that it doesn't really go out of date it's evergreen so the concepts behind it will be relevant in 20 years time so i can always go back and reach for them and it's helpful because it created a framework in which if if any you know anybody comes to me with like a computer science problem a programming problem i can be like well i've not seen it before but i've seen things similar to it or i've i know the fundamentals of what must be going on there so i can start to i can talk about it sensibly um so i think in that sense it's helpful there's been a lot of stuff in games that is very particular to games um the way graphics work is very particular to games um and we do we do cover a bit of graphics covered a bit of graphics on my degree but um yeah since then i've done more programming experience jobs and such and then ended up here instructing and teaching um teaching what i've learned so it's quite cool it's um it's very fun to do programming as as i'm sure many of our students know uh, that you can get very addicted to it so no, yeah. i'm doing it as a job yeah. I get lost in the code, even if I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I have to say, it's oh, going. frustrating too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, do you think somebody should go get a computer science degree if they want to make games, or is it just better to like understand a framework? Oh, no, yeah. no, I don't think you have to go and get a computer science degree. Um, you can teach yourself most, most of what you need to know, mm -hmm. for sure. And go get a computer science degree if you're in love with the, the maths and the science, like, if you're in love with computer science and you really like that stuff um, and you'd enjoy doing a computer science degree, then do that. Um, but if you, if it's as a stepping stone to, to making games, I think there are much quicker ways to do that because mm -hmm. being self-taught, you'll get most of it. In fact, I think the way it worked with our degree is that they kind of assumed that you were self-taught programming anyway, so they didn't bother teaching us to program. They <laughs> <laughs> nice. basically nice. assumed that we could program and gave us programming assignments and stuff uh but never like they did a few lecture series on it but it was a joke in comparison to the rest of the degree we might have done like a you know, seven lecture series on c++ like everyone who knows c++ knows that seven lectures is not enough um yeah, no. to learn c++ <laughs> not at all <laughs> yeah so that was it. it was kind of like these are the concepts of c++ you know the fundamentals of programming and that, like how programming languages work so you know go off and uh, and and tinker around and we expect you to figure stuff out but that was particular to my degree and i would say that's a good way you know i really liked that because it was like you're you know we're not going to teach you the stuff that you can pick up for yourself will teach you the stuff that you don't know that you need to know, <laughs> yeah. um, which is a great thing about courses. But with online learning being what it is, I really do believe universities are becoming less and less necessary um, for a lot of people's goals, you know, mm -hmm. and especially at the prices they're at. I think the in the UK, they've, they've gone up. In the US, they've always been expensive. Um, we used to have um it used to cost you like three thousand pounds a year for university which is you know 
a reasonable amount, quite cheap. Um, and they've all gone up to £9,000 a year, um, which I think in the US is still very cheap, but for, for us has gone up quite considerably. And it starts to become like, you know, how many online courses could you buy for £9,000 a year? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to be said about having instructor-led stuff, though, too. Yeah, there is. There is, definitely. And I think, I think we'll start to see more offerings in this space right. of things that bridge the gap, hopefully, and democratize education. Because for £9,000 a year, that you could, you should be getting an awful lot for that. Oh, I agree. More <laughs> than you should be able to learn probably in a year, right? Yeah, you should be able to learn loads of stuff, more than they teach you in lots of universities, I think. Yeah, yeah. I would, yeah. With better quality of teaching, uh, less kind of altar of knowledge stuff where you, you go to the teacher who is uh, sit, sit and listen for an hour and then go away and, and you make notes yeah. as you went along. There should be, there should be a lot more going on. Or relevant to the online learning platforms evolve faster and adapt to newer technologies, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Universities are kind of stuck in their routine. I mean, they're just starting to phase out C and Java and some of those programming languages, it seems like. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily say that C and Java are the, well, C, it depends what you need to do. They're still really relevant in some spheres, that's the thing. Uh, it might not be in game right. development. Yeah, but Java. Well, I don't even know how relevant. I mean, you know, coming from a business background, you know, a lot of it's C sharp and other programming languages. And they don't really have adapted that quick to those newer languages. Yeah, Not well, that, C that, that yes. Big. I mean, I, I I understand maybe they don't phase out something like C or yeah. Java, but but not introduce that doing that at the at the um, detriment of not introducing languages like C sharp and Python. Right. Is, is a major failing. Um, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's kind of what I meant more yeah. than anything. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. It really is interesting. I mean, the, the approach my degree took was to say that the programming language is immaterial. Um, and so they to, to sidestep this, to sidestep, you know, are you learning Java or, you know, C sharp or Python or the newest thing? They basically taught us very esoteric languages that nobody used um, deliberately so that A, nobody had experience in that language before, so it was an even playing field for everyone, and B, to kind of really emphasize the fact that to some extent programming languages don't matter. They're all different syntax, they're different right. names for methods, but if you understand the principles of object-oriented programming, you know what a, how to subclass, what an interface is, um, how virtual methods work, these kinds of core things that most languages implement, then everything else is a smattering of features on top of that, and you essentially program in a similar way. Um, but there is, there's, that's, that's the theoretical ivory tower argument, and yeah. the reality is that if you've got five years' experience programming in C-sharp, you know the ins and outs of C-sharp, and the idiomatic ways of working with that language that you won't just pick up by going, I understand how to program in a general object oriented. I've, I've played program Java before or whatever. Yeah. yeah. That's what I think I found. Like, I, I think I read that Sam's book on C plus plus too. You know, it was just kind of like such a low level 
you know, or left the command prompt kind of thing. And it's like, well, where do I go from here? Cause we don't do command prompt programs anymore. You know, <laughs> now how do we put something on the screen? Yeah. So I, I think that's massively important is to, to not teach programming in terms of like, here, take it, get enter number one, enter number two. Here is the result of the two added together because there's only so much that you can do with that in your imagination. Like right. without, you know, you can make some games that way, but they're going to be very old school, um, very limited. You can, it's fine as an interface for certain automation stuff. So say you want yep. to automate a whole bunch of stuff, um, but then you still not need to know how to integrate, integrate with the stuff that you're automating. So, you know, that then you need to know how to reach out of your programming language in order to make it useful. So you need to know how to reach out to something like unity. You need to know how to reach out to, I don't know, maybe the web so that you can call web APIs. If that's, if that's the kind of thing you're doing, um, whatever you do, the programming language is just one tool in the arsenal and you need to understand the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. Now, when somebody's trying to get a job in the game industry, do you think computer science is still important or are you just showing off like the games you made or your portfolio? I think it's less important in the games industry than in other industries. Um, I... I'm not the expert to talk about this. Rick is the expert to talk about this. He's hired in game development studios and I haven't. Um, I've hired more in um, regular kind of programming jobs. So more enterprise stuff and web and that sort of thing. So I know that process much better. And I know that the, you know, a degree can be a strong signal. So a degree, especially from a good university will be a strong signal and people will go, Oh, you know, this is worth looking at this candidate's definitely worth interviewing. Um, but to be honest, the, any, any strong signal like that is useful. So other strong signals will be experience that you've had, will be projects that you've made, especially in game development. So those kinds of things will demonstrate anything that can demonstrate your skill. You just need to make your CV look different to everyone else's. Um, make it look stand out and show that you are able and care and the great thing about having a portfolio of projects that a degree doesn't show is your ability to work your kind your self-motivation because if you can go and, and create projects without the framework of a university around you to to set exams and such then you have a higher level of self-motivation. Mm -hmm. It goes really far. Yeah. I'm surprised how many people don't have that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you feel about the podcast? The podcast? Well, I've, I've not, I've got to admit, I haven't, I haven't listened to many episodes of it um, because I have a very limited amount of time. I've got a one-year-old um, just oh, nice. one last month. So... Uh, the, the amount of time I have is like this and I don't have a commute because I work in my house. Mm -hmm. So there's no commute to listen to podcasts on anymore. So it's not, don't take any offense. It's not, it's not <laughs> this podcast. It is no <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> it's okay. I haven't listened to any of the podcasts. I haven't been on either. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to listen to this one because I'm going to start to see how you misrepresented me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'll cut it up. How we, how we edit it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> Sam promised. 
that's right. Exactly. I didn't even say that about Ben. (laughs) Exactly. You're going to totally twist my words. That's fine. But um, how do you feel about it with like game dev students and maybe doing it for like future announcements? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is fantastic. I love... I used to love podcasts when I had more time to listen to them. And I think it's a fantastic way for students to stay engaged because, you know, this is one of the hardest things about online education is how to stay engaged, how to stay motivated when it's just you. Um, And a podcast, just one more way for you to feel connected to this community of people who are trying to do the same thing as you. And that's just really powerful. So, you know, I'd love the podcast to be this place where we showcase the wonderful work our community does and the amazing things that you're doing the, and, and inspires you to carry on in your learning journey. Um, so I hope more and more students will, will take the time on their commutes to put this podcast in their, in their buffer and, um, and stay inspired, basically. No, I agree. Yeah, I hope so. Now, we are all excited about Unity Part 2. So I know you guys talked about it a little bit yesterday, but can you explain a little bit more about what Part 2 is called now and what's it all yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. So I, exactly. So we had a whole AMA about it yesterday, but you may not have listened to the... Some, someone listening to this might not have listened to the whole hour of that. So um, the RPG Part 2, as it was formerly known, um, we've done an RPG context we've done an rpg kickstarter out of the back of that we created uh, the rpg core combat creator uh, also known as rpg part one um and it's part of a series of rpg courses because as many of us know rpg is about one of the most complex games you could choose to create um and we naively went and said let's make a course on that and so here we are a few years later still making a course on that and so the part one or core combat was redone after we did a full prototype of the rpg to make a really slick learning journey to make sure that the the latest versions of unity were used with nested prefabs and then we realized that once you've got that foundation you might want to go in different directions and i know we, we, some people get in trouble for using the phrase so i won't say the choose your own destiny or whatever the, the phrase is that people are currently getting in trouble for for using in their games but we want to do that sort of thing with your courses we want you to be able to say well i'm most interested in introducing an inventory into my rpg or my game not necessarily an rpg or i'm more interested in introducing dialogue next i'm more interested in introducing questing you know you have a certain goal for your game and it's not going to be the same as ours. So we want to make sure that we're not holding you back by having to learn about something that you don't want to learn about in order to get to your goal. So part two, with all that said and done, is going to be inventory. And it's not going to be a requirement that you take part one. You can take the inventory course standalone you can introduce it into a game that's not an RPG. We will show you how to integrate it into the RPG we're building, but um, it can be done without that project, without any knowledge of that project. So that's the aim. And we're taking a little bit of a different teaching style in order to do this because it's a more of an intermediate course. We're not aiming to teach you all the programming concepts, and we're aiming really to teach you about learning to read code 
and understand other people's code and feel more confident with that rather than having to always feel like you have to write everything yourself, every line, um, because you can learn an immense amount by reading other people's code. And in fact, you know, that's how I go teaching myself anything new. If I don't know how to build a saving system, which I didn't before I went and built the RPG, I go and find projects code that do it, read the code and go, I like that element, don't like that element. I'm going to build my own off the basis of that. So it's a, it's a very, very useful skill for anybody to know how to read other people's code. So the inventory course is going to be more at that level, more at the intermediate level, learning how to read the code that we're creating. And then we're going to go on to other courses that cover other elements that are core to an RPG, but maybe core to another game. Uh, a very likely candidate for that is going to be dialogues and quests, because obviously dialogues and quests is something that doesn't just belong in an RPG. And so we didn't want to have it siloed in the RPG course where only people interested in an RPG would come across it. We wanted to have it more accessible to everyone. So that's the spirit of things. And the release date that we promised in the AMA uh, was the first week of February. We have a lot of the content already there waiting in the wings with uh, reviewers giving us all the feedback on and we've been doing a lot of improvement of that content so it should release on our platform first week of february and you'd me soon after um and yeah that's that's where we where we got up to in the ama and future courses we don't yet know that's that road the roadmap becomes a bit hazy past there um but we will we'll focus on delivering what we're working on first that sounds so, good yeah question on that though so <clears throat> studying off the computer science degree question now, if, since you don't have, say, an inventory system for Unreal course, yeah. could a student take the stuff they learn potentially in the, un in the Unity inventory system and be relevant in Unreal, you think? I think it would be relevant. I mean, certainly when you start to look at the... I'm always drawing parallels between the engines. Um, a lot of the architecture of our RPG is inspired by how Unity, um, Unity, how Unreal architects the control of their players. So uh, let me give you a concrete example. Um, in Unreal, there is something called the gameplay framework, which basically is saying that you have an actor, which is your character in the world, and then you have a player controller which is responsible for taking input from the player and a player controller possesses an actor and that player controller means that means that the, it moves that actor around it moves your player around but the nice thing about this architecture is that because the actor and the player controller are separate the actor same actor can be used for ai all you need is an ai controller and the ai controller controls that actor and it'll be the same you can include all the same logic about movement and so on in the actor and all you have to do is swap out the control code or swap out the control class so that's an architecture that you can implement in unity so this is going the other way that's an architecture that we implemented in unity we have a character class we've got or a movement class when we've got um a player controller kind of script and we've got an AI controller kind of script which both uh, play that role of controlling the actor. 
So you can definitely go that way and you can go back the other way. So look at the architecture, the types of architecture we're using and try and implement a similar thing in Unreal. Absolutely. It will, I won't lie, it's not going to be a straightforward, like, oh, obviously this is what we're going to use here because there are certain concepts that uh, Unity does in one way and Unreal does in another, such as, you know, when we use a scriptable object in Unity, there's not a straightforward you should definitely use this feature in Unreal. You need to consider sure. the pros and cons of what you know about the different things that you've got available to you. Like, should I use an actor in this case? Should I use a, a data object? Uh, what, what makes most sense in Unreal? And so it's going to require you to use uh, a lot of judgment, uh, generous sure. helpings of judgment. But the framework and architecture of an inventory, I think, should be pretty similar whatever engine you choose. Now, what about like combat using like animation blueprint? How would they go about that? Yeah, well, so again, it's the some some of the specifics are going are going to be very different. So, the way you set up your animation is going to be completely different in Unity and Unreal. Um, the animation in Unreal is obviously all done through an animation blueprint. In Unity, it's all done via the um, the animator co component and the animator asset, which is far more restricted than the animation blueprint in Unity and in Unreal. Gosh, um, and but the the code that drives that, right? The architecture around the code that drives that, the gen, the the wider picture of who is it responsible for driving animation? Should animation events have any impact on gameplay or are you driving everything through the scripts and animations just a display layer on top of that? That kind of question comes up both in Unity and Unreal. So, you know, the, the, the classic example is, does it matter whether I, you know, do damage when I have a particular, when I get to a certain stage in the animation? Because that's something that then, you know, there's, there's this complexity of who controls how long it takes to fire something. Because that could be, you know, that then becomes in the animator's hands. How long my animation is makes a difference to the delay between pulling the bowstrings and seeing an arrow fire, which might be very important to the feel of your game. So you'd have your game designers wanting to tweak how long it takes the delay from pressing the button and so on. Sorry, just, uh, maybe something needs to be cut out, but I <laughs> the pause. Um, no, I just good. had Zoom. I yeah. just had Zoom um, tell me that I that I was trying to figure out whether it was saying that the forty-minute limit was over, but it's saying that they. The upgrade does a free. Yeah, they gave us unlimited. Hey. Like a conversation. Fantastic. Thank you. They clearly understood that it was a valuable conversation. Um, so what was I saying? Yeah, so that's something the designer needs to be able to tweak. And the designer doesn't want to have to go and change the length of an animation, doesn't want to have to go and tell the animator, look, this, this, this firing of the bow doesn't feel right. You need to make the animation shorter. They want to be able to say, let me just change the delay. And sure, it looks janky with the animation, but we'll get the animator to update it later. Does it feel right? Yes, it feels right. Okay, then we can go and update the animation now. So that kind of thinking about the coupling between your animation layer and your, your gameplay layer uh, is very important. And that, as I said, is a consideration that comes up both in Unity and Unreal. Mm -hmm. 
you think there will be an Unreal combat course? We definitely want to do more stuff in Unreal. And I think we will see what the best opportunities are when we have um, space to do that. There's, it's, it's unlikely to be a full RPG because I think we've learned our lesson that it's a, it's a big beast to take on. And we would rather teach you the chunks that build up an RPG in, yeah. in Unreal and then get you to do the integrating because that's fundamentally better for students who want to create a slightly different version of this or a game that isn't an RPG but has an inventory and so on. So we'll, but that said, you know, that this model is kind of what we're going towards with the Unity RPG as well. So I think we'll do more of that. We'll do more of content that helps you understand and migrate things yourself as well because I think that's a vital skill, as you said. You know, when, when we have a scriptable object in Unity, what should we be using in Unreal? What are the options there? And what are the pros and cons? That's something that's really valuable and something that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a lot when I go to build something in Unreal. I'm like, I, think, I often think in Unity, I would have done this or vice versa. In Unity, I can be thinking, oh, in Unreal, I would have done that. And so it can be really helpful to know what the corresponding options are. My bad. What should students <laughs> expect from Game Day that TV in 2020? What should you expect? More awesome content, basically. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> more awesome content, that. more podcasts. The politicians <laughs> answer. Yeah. Um, but seriously, uh, if you go to our site, and I mean, we're not, we're not planning a whole 2020 vision um, because we don't want to make promises that then don't that have to change because plans change and new things come up um we don't want to let people down so if you go to our site go to the bottom in the footer there is a roadmap link and if you have a look at the roadmap that's telling you what's coming up what's in production what's planned and committed to um so you can see the current sections being worked on you know so it's obvious stuff but like right now we're working on finishing a blender remaster we're working on a maths course we're working on doing a c plus plus remaster with creating the rpg inventory course where the blender asset pack course is is going to have stuff happen to it the maths section on algebra is coming up next the blender fluffy bunny is coming up so these are the sections of courses that are coming up and what we have planned so that's that's you know that's a political answer for you. <laughs> I like it. Do you think we'll ever get a female instructor for Game Dev TV? We would love to get a female instructor for Game Dev TV, and you know, this is something that we're we are looking at doing more of is hiring or getting more instructors because there's so much content you guys want <laughs> from us, and we'd love to make, but. So far, we haven't found the magical machine that makes us produce content 10 times faster. Um, so we, the only other way we can think of is getting more instructors. So this is something that we'd like to do and maybe something that, that dovetails into the 2020 question is we'd, we'd hope that you're going to see more instructors and a female instructor is definitely something that we want to get um, because we, we just want to have a more diverse team, to be honest, um, mm -hmm. because we're pretty... Yeah, monotonous at the moment. Um, 
at least in the instructor team and you know in the game wider game dev team we have more more balanced but still pretty unbalanced mm. um i think for the industry and for technology industry it's quite um it's quite a common problem everywhere mm -hmm. mm. why should students choose teachable over udemy aha yes this is a this is a good question <laughs> one that came up in the ama um basically at the moment we've got some integrations with the community which are, are better and we've got a dark theme but the fundamental reason you should choose teachable is because we're constantly going to be improving it and integrating it into our ecosystem in a way that we can't do with udemy so one one example is the community right so over on udemy like forever we've had links to the git commits and community against every lecture and that's an example of us trying to hack um, Udemy so that it works with our community. But ultimately, Udemy can't provide, you know, they have a, a wide range of topics, a wide range of instructors, so they can't provide us a bes this bespoke experience. Uh, whereas on Teachable or on Game Dev TV, we can do that. And so the community is the first of those examples. And we should, well, I should hope, keep your eyes peeled, we should have more investment in that platform to, to bring you more awesome things to help improve your learning experience. Awesome. I love Teachable. I love the uh, uh, app for the iOS. Yeah. It runs much better than Udemy. Oh, Udemy cool. always crashes on me. Yeah. I unfortunately don't have an iOS device. I've got Android. So unfortunately, I'm still yeah. behind there. I don't have uh, access. <laughs> To the, to yeah, app, that's unfortunate. But, but yeah, hopefully they'll get. They'll get there. I'm sure. I'm sure they're 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 also um, so Teachable is just for context. Teachable is the the company that uh, hosts our site or has has the platform that runs our site, and it's far more bespoke than Udemy. So Udemy is very much a kind of here is here's how you build a course, build a course, release it on the platform, and you get a very unique cookie cutter experience uh, the videos are all different obviously but the the structure of how you take it is, is very much the same teachable gives us a lot of flexibility in terms of how we present you with a course um not to the extent where we can just say we're going to release an android app because if teachable doesn't support that then we're going to struggle with you know a small team and we don't have the development uh, effort that we that even teachable and certainly not udemy has but we can provide um, stuff on top of Teachable. So when they do get to Android apps, and I very much hope they will soon, then it's going to be very cool. Um, I think, you know, they, they're, um, they're a growing company as well. They're getting bigger. They're, they're planning to add lots of features. Uh, we really want, but don't currently have a way of integrating your logins between the community site and Game Dev TV. So unfortunately, those are two logins. That's some, the kind of thing that we very much hope will um, come in the future. So you'll have one login for all your Game Dev TV stuff. Uh, that's that's the kind of thing yeah. we want to we want to get towards. That's gonna be really cool. Hmm. I can't wait for that. Now, how should one practice programming every day besides just making the game? Is it like should we do like challenges or solve problems? How do you how do you kind of train yourself mm -hmm. every day? I think the the best thing to do is just to work on a project. Really, mm -hmm. um, you can 
you can try and put yourself through challenges. Challenges can be fun if you're the kind of person who likes challenges, who likes doing things like the Euler project or, you know, the kind of much more mathsy, riddly kind of problems. And if those float your boat, go for it. But for me, the difficulty with those is you build up, you have to build up momentum for every new prob problem that you solve. So whenever you start off on a new project, there's always that moment where you're like, oh, I don't know where to dive into this problem. It's, it's overwhelming. It's big. I, I don't know what to start on. And you need a lot of motivation to get over that hump. And then you're like, okay, well, I'm going to start on this particular bit. Maybe I'm going to build this UI. Maybe I'm going to you know, start building this part of the system you get over that motivational barrier and then things start to flow because you're starting to say, well, I've got this thing in progress. I know what the problem I'm currently working on is. And you struggle at night to leave things unresolved and problems unsolved, but you stop at some point. And then you can come back the next day and go, oh, well, I know where I'm starting with this. So I, you know, I'm, I'm really excited and psyched to carry on and finish that project. You know, I, I went to bed thinking, aha, you know, there's that, that thing I didn't try. Um, and you get there and you try it the next day and that gets you started on that positive role. Whereas if you have something which is a bunch of programming exercises, every day you're starting afresh and you're going, oh, here's a new project. Oh, don't know how to start with that. Right. Mm. You know, so it, it's harder motivationally. I think having a, a longer range projects can really help with that. Um, in terms of really getting into the flow with programming. I always find that I'm having the most fun when I've stuck my teeth into a juicy programming project for a couple of weeks. And I'm just, you know, I sit down, I program, I forget to eat. Um, <laughs> at some point I need to go to bed or I need to go and spend time with the family. And that's what I do. And then I come back the next day and uh, rinse and repeat until the, until the thing is, prop, is wrapped and solved. And, and that's, that's my experience of it. Different people will have different experiences. But if you're like me and that's the kind of motivation you get out of programming, then I think, you know, try and lean into it. That's, it's, a quite, it's a quite a self-enjoyable activity. And if it's not enjoyable for you, then... I don't know. Maybe it's it's partly a skill thing as well. If you're not enjoying it, then there is it's very likely that you know increasing your skill, increasing your comfort, lowering the challenge. Maybe you've picked something that's too hard um, for your current skill level. So lower the challenge. Try something a bit easier. If you're just starting off programming and you're like, I'm going to build an RPG, and you go in and you're just like, I have no idea where what I'm doing here. Like <laughs> I'm so stuck, and you get nowhere then that's not going to engage you day to day. But if you mm. get stuck in a, a beginner level course and the challenge is just right for you, then I'd really believe that programming is something that's just, you don't even need to think about like trying to motivate yourself to do because it's so, so, so much fun. No, I agree. I think it's really fun. It's, it's also true. Don't, don't make wow. Don't make huge MMO RPG. as <laughs> your first game. Best way don't to kill it. your motivation. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> What mistakes do most beginner students make? Ah, well, apart from missing semicolons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not doing <laughs> not the challenge. <laughs> not pausing the video. <laughs> yeah, missing semicolons is a very common one. Um, 
uh, do you mean more in a general sense, kind of like higher level mistakes? Yeah. Higher, like mistakes around learning? Well, I think, I think, yeah, taking on too much, taking on a project that's too big at, at your current stage is, is definitely one of them. And one that I'm, you know, I, I'm li- liable to do as well when I start on something new. Uh, just because, you know, you don't know what's in it. this is the problem that you don't know what this entails there's a great xkcd comic um you might be able to find for the show notes where basically the boss comes up to the programmer and says we need to make an app that you take a photo and it can tell you whether or not the photo was taken in a, in a national park and the programmer says easy you know no problem a couple of hours we'll get that together we just need to get the global positioning database and and figure out whether the position was in the right place and they said and then it needs to figure out whether the picture you took was of a bird. Okay, I'm going to need a research team in five years. (laughs) So the point is that if you don't understand the technical bits yet, it can be really hard to know whether the the, the thing you're trying to solve is at the right level for you and whether it's hard or not. That's the, the moral of this comic is that it's really hard for someone without technical knowledge to understand the difficulty of a programming problem. And so that's, I mean, that's what we try and do with our courses, right? It's all project-based learning. We try and give you projects that are appropriate to your stage. And if a project's not working for you, if it's to, you keep getting stuck, try and knock it back. And similarly, if you're going through a project and it's too easy and you're just like, la, 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 type, 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 this is easy. I'm just, you know, not coming across any roadblocks at all. Then you've probably chosen something that's too, too easy. What do you think are good, good examples of good starter projects? Uh, I mean, all the ones from our beginner courses are great starter projects. Okay, besides Talk- those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so particularly in games, it's difficult really, isn't it? I think with, with games, it can be very easy to, with engines like Unity, putting something together that's physics-based is really rewarding and very easy because you can add a bit of impulse to a sphere when you hit space, you know, something like, for example, a a cannonball project. So you're, you've got some hoops, you need things to go through these hoops and you need to hit space bar for a certain amount of time. The longer you hit space bar, the harder it fires your ball through these hoops. And the lovely thing is that once you include physics, so much stuff is just automatically, you don't need to program it because the physics takes care of it. You know, the whole reality of the situation takes care of it. So all you need to do is provide an impulse to this ball of the right magnitude. And you need to figure out whether or not it went through a hoop or whether it even, you know, just whether it hit a target or whether it knocked over some angry birds or whatever it is then you know, those kinds of things can be really simple to make. Um, and you can think of an infinite variety of ways of using physics in creative and interesting ways. So that's, that's one, one idea. I think it was in the Unreal uh, VR course. Could you explain how they can get the most out of the courses? Yes. A little bit more into that? Yeah. Um, thanks for reminding me. Uh, it's, it's really all about how you engage um, and your level of engagement. So the lowest level of engagement would be just following along, not doing anything. 
So watching the videos, but not programming anything, not attempting any challenges, which is definitely not what we recommend for anybody. Uh, the next level up is to have your own project that follows along with the instructor's project. So you do everything that the instructor does. You do the challenges when the instructor says, and you end up with a project that looks exactly the same as the instructor's. So that's great because you're already typing things in. You actually have had to do something and that helps solidify and cement things. But you wouldn't necessarily, if you were asked to make a slightly different project, know where, what to do because you've been following along on rails the next level up from that is to have your own side project that you want to work on so you would follow along with the instructor's project and also look at what you're learning and say how does that help me or what can i now do in my side project my pet project and we find a lot, of a lot of students do this, especially with the RPG, because the RPG is that kind of course, that people have their own RPG and their own way of doing it. They want to do something slightly differently. And so that works fantastically because you are then asking questions that we haven't covered. You're having to integrate the knowledge. You're having to reach a bit beyond, do some Google searches, do you know, look on Stack Overflow, figure stuff out that really helps solidify your knowledge and ultimately that's why we've got the community in place that's why we've got discord in place because we want to, everyone to be able to support each other in doing that kind of activity to be able to say i've done something that's gone beyond the scope of the courses so maybe you know the instructors can't say well you should definitely do this because i don't and i don't know how you're working on your project and there's a limit to how much we can give bespoke help but in the community is a fantastic place where people can share their best practices, what they've tried that's gone along, that's gone differently. Um, they can say, you know, I, I tried to integrate my inventory system into my own project and it didn't go quite as smoothly as I thought. Here are the problems I came up with and you can work on solving those collaboratively. And that's going to the process of asking a question, answering it. Sometimes just asking the question will solve it as we, as we, all know by now the process of formulating a question can itself just make you go ha ah, that must be the answer and other times you know you'll get a response and the fact that you had to ask the question and got the response means that you'll never forget that response you'll never forget how um how you were told you could do it not bad <laughs> <laughs> I got background noise. I'm like, I don't want them to hear it. But um, what, what's it like being an instructor and uh, what's your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, um, there's oh, so much stuff goes on day-to-day -day and a lot of it doesn't seem to be related to instructing, it feels. I mean, I spend a lot of time in a week doing support. So we have a lot of teaching assistants um, and they help us massively to kind of multiply our efforts um, but anything that a teaching assistant thinks we should see, we see. And um, we dive in there ourselves as well, dive into the Q&A, dive into the community site, dive into Discord and take part in the community. So we do spend a good chunk of time making sure students are supported along their journeys. Um, I just find it very interesting the kinds of problems students come up with. Sometimes I'll spend a few hours trying to figure out a particular student's problem because I feel like I don't know the answer to that. That sounds fun. I need to, I need to figure that out. Um, so do that. 
obviously spend a lot of time prototyping, recording. So we tend to make up uh, versions of the projects we're going to teach before we teach them to work out kinks in the road. We used to not do that. We used to make the project as we recorded. Um, but that led to uh, going down what Ben likes to call a cul-de-sac, where you do a particular type of implementation, realize that implementation is infeasible or intractable, doesn't work. And you have to go, oh, okay, well, we're going to undo the last five lectures, or you know, we're going to remove the code from the, that we did in the last five lectures and do it a different way, which leads to a section that might be 30 lectures instead of needing to be 10. You know? So we do prototypes beforehand to make sure we know what, what, how we're going to implement a project, and that that's feasible all the way to the end of the project. Then we break that down. We plan the teaching, figure out what concepts you need to know, you know what haven't you seen before, uh, make sure that we've got lectures about that. And then we sit down and record typically. So sit down, record, and depending on the type of course, we might be typing out all the, all the solution, doing a completely fresh solution from scratch, or we might be going over the solution that we prototyped. Um, so that's what the typical day looks like. And then there's a, there's a whole bunch of editing and editing, uploading, making sure everything's good, patching videos that support has shown are confusing have shown that like we don't explain something very well or misspoke or left a burp in or something like that and um and so that's that happened oh yeah that's happened i'm sure there's been <laughs> i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> they usually get you you won't see many of them because we get to them quickly but um that's the benefit of, of patching things quickly but uh i think once or twice not naming any my names Mike, um, have uh, left burps in their videos. And I don't think it's only Mike, to be honest. I think, I think <laughs> many of us have left um, bloopers in by accident. Mm. Yeah. You guys should do that one day. Make like a blooper video. Just to, I think we've done that occasionally. We have done occasionally. <laughs> um, and, and it's quite funny, especially outtakes from, um, from our promo videos. Uh, they can, they can oh, look yeah. pretty funny. I've yeah. seen one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else was it you had like parody uh, trailers for you know, unreal and the uh, blender course oh, and mike man. was singing oh that was parody, great parody trailers oh. yes like ads yeah for udemy yeah yeah we did some of those ads with mikey singing those great those, that was yeah. fun yeah oh, we should do actual parodies so when we sit down to record this is a really good idea we should parody the promotion to our course i, I think that would be quite funny there's one where, uh, you know, they have that one Udemy ad where it's like making games is easier than you think. Yes. So that made one where it says making games is harder, like it's effing harder than you think. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, is this hard. is great. <laughs> yep. So you want to make an RPG and spend the rest of your life building it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what though? It's, it's actually good though. Cause I think people can really see how complex it is. Yeah, I yeah, think if they go down that RPG way. course, they're like, "Oh, this isn't as easy as I thought it'd be." No, so, I think no, I think that's not. right, and and I think, <laughs> yeah, I think it's also going to look easier uh, than it is when it's been laid out for you as well. So, right. um, because you don't have to go down the rabbit holes of figuring out that oh, this implementation doesn't work. Um, well, no, you can if you want. We've got the we've got the the first iteration of of the RPG, right? So you can take the first iteration of the RPG, and that shows you, in essence, how how you can 
end up at a solution. That's that's what I started with was what um, Ben and Rick had built the first time around, and then right. I prototyped it to the end and realized that I had to change like fifty percent of it. And that's that's how programming works. You know, it's not it's not yeah. something that they did wrong. It's just that you get more knowledge about your problem and your solution and you decide that you need to change the code that's just refactoring as right. a continuous process so there's less no, of I, the refactoring in the rpg as it stands because we know what we're heading towards um so yeah the complexity you see on screen is is one side of it um but then there's probably you know like twice as much behind the scenes if you were to do that from scratch no i agree and i actually the funny thing is i actually kind of always like the courses for that reason they weren't perfect it's kind of nice to go down that rabbit hole a little bit as a student because you realize they exist i mean you kind of conceptually know but it's almost nice to see them laid out right in front of you yeah and, and we like, try, yeah, we're gonna have to fix this <laughs> and we try and we try and leave some of that in some of that flavor yeah. um but try and control the level a little bit because Absolutely. it can get it can get like oh no this is this another refactor video like like oh, another yeah. refactor video <laughs> in a series of five refactor videos this is this is too much and you know it's it's i think mostly because we can't find an engaging way to teach you a refactor um that's that we try to limit the size of those refactors more than that. No, no, that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. And, and the thing is, yeah, RPG, it's, it's a huge beast. It's a huge beast and it's even huger right. to try and figure out. It's one thing to make it. It's another thing to make it and figure out how to teach it. And that's, that's the challenge that we're coming up against. We thought, Oh, you know, it'll be like making it with a little bit of teaching on the side, but not that easy no. <laughs> <laughs> no. what has been the hardest topic to teach has it been the rpg i think that's been the most challenging in terms of its sheer size mm -hmm. i think the most challenging in terms of trying to prototype stuff so the thing is rpg is challenging because it's large but at no point during the prototyping was I stuck there going, I have no idea how to proceed. Um, and I have no idea where to, where to look for things. For that, I have to turn to Unreal because Unreal has given me much more of that kind of moments of I have no idea what, um, mostly because of documentation. And this is the real, you know, one of its weak points, in Unreal's weak points is that Unity, most things are well documented. Most of the engine features are documented. If it's not a documented feature, then you probably know it's not there. Um, on the other hand, with Unreal, there's just so much stuff that you know the engine must be able to do, but you've got no idea where to start looking. And the documentation doesn't help you, and <laughs> you just get really stuck. So I think in that regard, the hardest thing that I've had to teach is probably the Unreal multiplayer course. Because the multiplayer systems in Unreal are very poorly documented, and to under, you, you can't understand how it's supposed to all fit together as a greater whole, and so I really had to build up that information from secondhand information, basically like looking through other people's projects, as we said before, reading other people's codes is a huge source of great information. So looking at their example multiplayer projects, having a look at um, resources that you can glean online, having a look in the code base. So actually reading the you know, 12,000 line character class and figuring out which bits of it are relevant and which bits actually make the multiplayer 
system behave as it does. So I think that's been the most challenging just in terms of actually trying to aggregate the information and simplify it. I think it won't come through in the course because we've done the process of simplifying it and can show you like, you know, this is, this is how it's supposed to work, but just figuring out that that was how it's supposed to work was incredibly challenging. In the uh, AMA, did you guys ever get into like a level design course? Is there ever a question about that? Yeah, I think we want to do something similar to that and it'll probably come as part of the RPG series um, very likely because, you know, you need to do some level design with it. And mm. the most logical place we decided to do level design is once you have all the features of your game. So if you try and start level designing before that, and you have nowhere to place your dialogue or, you know, you know, way of structuring your dialogue or figuring out where your quests are, then it doesn't really make sense. So I think very likely once we are feature complete on the RPG, we're likely to do a pure design course. Uh, don't quote me on this. It's not necessarily going to happen exactly like this, but this is our current thinking is that Rick might do a pure design course on using the features in the RPG and if you're not a programmer, that will be fine because I think we'll give you our RPG project to download mm -hmm. and you can use that to design your own levels with all the systems that are built in there. You know, the inventory system that is there. The, um, you can build out items. You can make up your own special items. You can put in your own dialogues. You can build your own quests. All of that data, all that game design data, you can put into our RPG project. So that's probably where we're going to go with that. Uh, again, I'm not 100% sure the future is uncertain. That's the okay. magic eight ball would say. Yes. Will there be a, uh, well, you probably don't know, but uh, how about a Unity multiplayer course? Of course, yeah. Unity's multiplayer has kind of been. Yeah, that's, that's the <laughs> thing we're mainly waiting for. I think it will be less challenging than the Unreal multiplayer course. And this is an area where it would very much help you to take the Unreal multiplayer course in Unity because the concepts in multiplayer are very difficult to understand or there's a, there's a lot to them. Um, and it's hard to wrap your head around the idea of lag and lag compensation. But those things are done exactly the same way between engines, at least from a conceptual level. So if you understand multiplayer in Unreal, it's really not hard to then pick up a library or whatever system they're building at Unity it's not hard to pick that up and go, okay, where are the gubbins that allow me to do, you know, replication? How does replication work? It's going to be server authoritative, most likely. So, you know, I've got to have some way of telling the server what I want to do. The server's got to have some way of telling me what state I need to represent. And in between it telling me what state I need to represent, I need to update the states with some interim approximations. And that's basically, the, you know, the hardest bit about multiplayer is doing that. And that's why they say don't port a single player game to multiplayer because it's so important to understand how the multiplayer aspect is going to work from the outset um, that you need to really start off thinking all of the, you know, having that as a consideration because it might not be possible to make the kind of game you want to make as multiplayer, you know, that the lag might be too great. You might be asking for something that's too twitchy and it's just impossible to play if your lag is over 100 milliseconds. That they you know it, it won't work for most players so uh, it's very important that you you start off with an understanding of the restrictions of of that kind of game 
So here's a student question. It says, what are you coping mechanisms for stress when your code isn't doing the things you want it to do? Mm-hmm. Or when you're tackling a new concept in your head, your code, but you can't seem to wrap your head around it? <laughs> yes, that sounds like my experience with the multiplayer course. Um, yep, yep. So it's stressful. I, th- I find it frustrating. Um, take a long walk. That's one of them. Um, sit down and get a piece of piece of paper out and draw diagrams what you currently understand because ultimately you need space from a problem to be able to solve it Um, and that space will help you come up with more angles of approach more ways that you could try and tackle the problem Uh, so that's what I typically do yeah and I, I get less stressed because I know over time, you start to realize, you know, as you solve more and more problems, you start to get gain confidence in your ability to, to tackle most problems that you're faced with. So the stress level decreases and the frustration level increases. So you're less like, oh, I'm never going to be able to solve this problem. And you're more like, oh, this problem. <laughs> want to fix this problem. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it can be, it can get really frustrating. And, you know, depending, it's a, it's a sign that you might be slightly on the, if you're still a beginner and you're learning, it's a sign maybe that the, pro, the project you're on is a little too advanced, um, potentially, but definitely use the techniques of going on walks, talking through the problem with yourself, talking through the problem with your spouse, even though they might not understand it, um, writing things down on paper to try, help you try and visualize the problem, visualize connections, especially in code. That can be quite hard because your code is a very non-visual thing. It's uh, it has many dimensions to it. You know, there's a call. You know, this function calls that function in that class that calls back to this function. That you know, there's the there's the whole kind of call structure. There's the data flow through your code, and none of that is visualized by anything. So get get some paper out and visualize it and see if that you know you you need to basically try and get as much of the problem in your head as possible in many different ways and then let your brain kind of relax and solve the problem so they, they say that you know your brain does a lot of work in the background that you don't know about so one way approach to solving a problem that seems intractable is to try and solve it as much as you can knowing that you won't be able to solve it then stop take a break think about something completely different do something you know ideally go outside look at something green, feel, you know, relaxed about things. And next time you come to the problem, the answer pops into your head because your subconscious has been thinking about the problem in the background for you. No, I think that's great advice. I mean, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like a, your CPU and your GPU. So like you can be working really hard on your CPU, trying to fix the problem right at hand, but then you uh, offload the program onto your GPU and the GPU runs it in multiple parallel threads very, very quickly in the background, solves a problem that the CPU couldn't handle and then ships it back. And, mm-hmm. the, and the CPU just has the result. So yeah, computer analogy like for that. you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about VR in, nowadays, especially with the Oculus Quest? Oh, it's so exciting. Now? It's such an exciting time. I mean, especially with uh, something like the Quest that allows you just totally democratizes it says you no longer need like a thousand pound gaming rig to play this you just need the quest 
brings it to everyone and you know not having the setup of the sensors now means that you don't need some kind of special vr gaming room to play it you can go and do it in your hotel room if you're you know going with you going with your quest on on holiday or whatever um that's fantastic because that means there's going to be more people buying games and that you know the the availability of VR games is still very restricted. So if you're looking for a space where you could have a higher chance of success in an indie, VR is the place because it's still growing. There's still not too many titles there to compete with. You know, you're competing against everything on desktop and on console. Whereas VR, it's, it's fast expanding. There's lots of stuff there, but it's not as saturated a marketplace. So if you really want to make an indie title that has a chance of success, then go and get yourself the, you know, the, the cheapest piece of quick kit or the best piece of VR kit that you can afford and try and make a game and you know, try and make it fun, obviously. It needs to be all those things, but the barrier to entry is going to be just a little bit lower to get your stuff off the ground. You think there'll be more uh, VR courses in the future? Hopefully. We'd like to do more VR courses. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the fact that this barrier is coming down would help us a lot there uh, because the difficulty is the VR course and the multiplayer course about the same level of difficulty in terms of, you know, intermediate courses, right? Mm -hmm. But the multiplayer course outsells it by about three to one because the VR course has that extra barrier to entry that you need to have VR kit. And, you know, unfortunately for us, that means that there's no way of recouping the development cost of a course like that and it's just not worth it when we could be doing other stuff that's going to have more wide wide ranging appeal to people maybe you know our platform's one potential solution to that as well because while we can't recoup the cost on udemy because udemy always discounts everything to ten dollars um if we were to do an exclusive to our platform we might be able to say you know like you're used to on vr games cost more on vr because there's fewer people with VR headsets to buy them, which is a great opportunity for you as an indie, by the way, because it means that you can sell your game, which is basically just you playing with lightsabers and you know slashing blocks, which is a super easy game to make. You can sell that game for the price of you know a massively complicated RPG on desktop. So, you know, in terms of the development effort, there's that aspect going for it, and I think that might have to be, unfortunately, the pricing model with a VR course as well. It's like if you've shelled out for VR hardware, you might have to pay a little bit more for a VR course as well. But that's early adopter problems, I'm afraid. Right. And that's why I'm excited for the new uh, platform. Start getting more uh, exciting courses. They're all yeah, exciting, that's, but that's really what we want to do. That's mm -hmm. yeah, that's a real hope is that we can get more exciting intermediate stuff mm -hmm. for our intermediate students that we couldn't feasibly do via udemy because the, the model the, the price structure isn't there to help support that yeah that makes sense what's your yeah. opinion back to unreal of uh blueprints and will we see more blueprint content in the future i think um the difficulty is that i like i like blueprints i think it's a you know pretty much a fully fledged programming language and when you're programming in unreal it's super helpful because of the ability to discover engine features is very easy the compilation takes virtually no time at all I need to cough <laughs> <coughs> uh, 
Um, so the compilation takes virtually no time at all, but it's far less ergonomic to code in than a script. And you know, I'm really holding out for, you know, Tim Sweeney has been hinting at the fact that they might be developing an in-house scripting language. And I'm very much hoping that their in-house scripting language will take the best of programming in something like C++ and the best of programming in something like Blueprint. So I'm very much hoping that that's the next thing we'd be able to teach in rather than more Blueprint content. And the reason is because Blueprint content, there's only so much of it that you need because there's a lot more documentation around that. There's a lot more self-discovery and there's a there's fewer features to be honest you know there's less stuff exposed via blueprint so that's why we focus on c++ because there's a there's far less stuff available to students to learn the c++ side of the engine yeah there's a lot of outdated tutorials on youtube yeah so if you like look now there's like nothing yeah. so i don't want to do this in c++ you can't find it and if you do it's like seven no. years ago yeah yeah, absolutely. Right. And the, I mean, if there's ever anything that you want to do in C++ that you can't find a tutorial for, I would really recommend two approaches. One is try and find an example project that does something similar and try and read that code or try and search the engine for keywords to see if you can find functions and functionality to do that. Yeah, that's going to be really helpful. Okay. Now, we're near the end, so we like to do a challenge just like in all the courses. Fantastic. Uh, game. Yeah, so you can give a challenge. It can be anything unreal. Follow this. Go check out this video. Do that. It's your challenge for students. Oh, I need to think about this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think my challenge to students is going to be to whatever game dev course you're currently in, whatever section you're currently on, go and find a feature that's been bugging you that hasn't been implemented in that section or even the previous section if it's easier if it's like a wrapped up project that you've got figure out there's a feature that you you thought you know should have been implemented but you weren't taught how to do it and just challenge yourself to implement that feature now it's going to be hard you're going to you're not going to know it necessarily you're going to have to go and Google for it. You're going to have to go and ask on Discord. You're going to have to ask, ask on the community. That's my challenge to you is figure out how to do that feature and implement it and share the solution so that others can enjoy the benefits of doing whatever feature it was that you wanted. I think that's a phenomenal uh, challenge because then a lot of people can learn more stuff that they've been trying to implement. I hope so. And I'd, yeah. like, I'd love to build a catalog of all these features you know people people ask us all the time you know how do i do this really specific thing mm -hmm. uh, could you build a course on how to do this very specific thing and what i always feel like saying is well no because there's there's a thousands of those little specific things we would like to teach you something better we'd like to teach you how to how to catch fish uh, not to give you the fish there you like go. you yeah exactly to be able to go and and figure that stuff out for yourself so do take the first step go and find something small something small and try that out and share it because i'd like to build that repository of information that allows people to to do that i love seeing people post the code 
to a new and innovative solution that they've based off of our courses. Awesome. Well, that was it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. I really Pleasure enjoyed having you on. A lot of students are going to benefit from this. Uh, I did. This is yeah. a great episode. Awesome. And Thank um, you. usually we end it off by handing the mic to you. If you want to say any last words, any advice, any tips, it's all for you. We hand the mic to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just thank you guys for hosting the podcast, putting it together. It's been fantastic. Thank you all, everyone who's been listening, uh, for listening through to the end at this point and for being part of our community and being an active and engaged part of our community because it really wouldn't be as rewarding a job as it is without having the support of you guys. So keep it up. Keep being awesome. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. You can find all GameDev.TV courses at courses.gamedev.tv slash courses or in the show notes with a 10% discount. Get started with your game development journey today.